Hello. <laughs> and welcome. Hello. Welcome. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That is Corinne. Hi. And I am Sabrina. And we are three, let's see, 359 days away from Halloween. So close. I can feel it in my blood. I can feel it in my bones. I can, oh, here we go. I feel like it should have been the reverse since you're the one that's obsessed with <laughs> vampires that you should have been <laughs> the feel it in my blood. Coursing through our veins. I don't drink milk. I drink Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be our new design. <laughs> new merch dropping. I like this. I feel like you're just coming it's out like got with all Halloween. the zingers. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like I'm like an advertisement like, okay, you're Hear churning things out. What were you doing yeah. earlier? Were you <laughs> sleeping? I slept like a, in today. Oh, oh, sleep. Who knew? Oh, sleep. The miracle cure. It's funny because you're such a night owl and you will be up at like 1 a.m. your time. And then so to me, I always think like, oh, you stay up. Or maybe that was just when you were in Massachusetts that you were up so late. Yeah. I was going to say, I was like, I don't think I've stayed up yet in Massachusetts because I was writing. I was, I just lost track of time. But, um, I will say my favorite time to write is actually like in the midnight to 5 a.m. hour, but I hardly ever do that because that's not functional with life. Yeah. But there were times where I was on script or on outline and I procrastinated because I haven't graded that. And I would wake up at like 4 a.m. and just like write like crazy in the mornings to get things done. But I loved it. I loved working at that hour. Sometimes I feel like you just need to wait until the last second to do things to produce good work, right? <laughs> like that's – procrastination isn't a bad thing. Uh, it might be stressful for the person who's doing it, but I think sometimes all of my best writing and all of my best work in college was produced just less than 24 hours before it was due. <laughs> <laughs> Those all-nighters that we would pull – in college, yeah. I, Back in the day. It's just not sustainable, right? So I, I've been trying to work on making more of a routine. And I had another writer friend who's, I mean, I, I admire her so much. But she, and she's also so talented. But she told me that she like took a class and it was all about showing up at the same time every single day so that the muse can find you, which is hmm. kind of a spiritual thing, right? So yeah. it's like, it's kind of like down a dark hall where you show up in the same place. So the spirit, the writing spirit muse can come through you and it knows where you are. You. you have your little writing nook. I guess that makes sense because people have like their favorite spots that they do things in. And yeah. that was actually something that not to like talk about my HR job when we're talking about fun <laughs> things like <laughs> writing for television. But that was one of the things that helped me in the beginning of the pandemic was choosing a different place to sit for each thing. So it was like when I was being creative, mm. I was sitting at the table. When I had my oh, meetings, I was at the island. When I was doing admin work, I was like sitting on the couch. Like Each spot had a different purpose so that you can kind of punctuate every moment. I don't know. It's helpful. Oh, I actually love that. By the time this comes out, daylight savings. <gasps> it, it will be dark at like 4 p.m. Oh, no. That's so sad. I hate daylight savings. When are we going to get rid of it? I thought that that was in motion. I thought that was a thing too, but I don't know. I don't I don't keep up with daylight savings. Oh, <laughs> well, that is sad. I'm on the newsletter, so. <laughs> no, I just dread I, it coming every year, so I look it up. I'm it's like, one of those things the darkness is creeping gotten, in. I know you said that I like stay up late or you think I stay up late, but I do feel like as I've gotten older, the second it gets dark, I'm like, oh, it's bedtime. Right. Yeah. 
we rise we rise and fall with the sun now we're <laughs> we're getting old it's like oh the sun old. rises at 5 30 a.m i guess i do I too. guess i'm up guess i'm up yeah i have been thinking about training for another marathon and the only thing is that it's hard to train in the winter months i mean winter in mm-hmm. la but but because there's less sunlight and i don't want to run in the dark no. Yeah, and it's not like the sun comes up early either. Well, I don't know. Take mm, Apple Watch, be safe, do the <laughs> things that keep you safe. Oh wait, I have I have a little ghost story for you. <gasps> what? What? Yes. What? It's not mine. My brother called me. Okay. Which I'm happy that he's collecting ghost stories for me. But he called me and he said, I have to tell you this ghost story I heard before I forget it. So I'm offloading it onto you right now. He okay, was so it's not his story. No, but he was present there in the moment. Oh. Okay. So he lives in Texas now, and my dad, my brother, they're hunters. I am not a hunter. I have no interest mm-hmm. in that, just a FYI, but they are. <laughs> so my brother was in Texas out with someone he knows, hunting on that person's property that has a lot of property that has a place that people will come and hunt on these many acres of land in Texas. Okay. So they're all getting ready to head out, or a few of them are getting ready to head out, And one of the men in the group says, oh, I wonder if you'll see the Native American and sort of kind of like did a little joke. And they were like, what are you talking about? And this guy told them that this has happened to him twice now, that he will be out on the land. He will find a deer. He'll whatever with the scope or however that person's hunting will be ready target wise lined up about to kill the deer. And the moment that he's about to pull the trigger or let go of the bow or whatever he's doing, very close by, he will hear Native American drumming. <gasps> and it scares away the deer. So he's lost two deer so Wait, far. I love these because spirits. there's Native American drumming. They're I don't know if they're protecting the animals. That's what I told my brother. I was like, oh my gosh, they're warning the deer. They're saving the deer on I their property. I love that. Right? Yeah, it's happened to this guy twice. My brother said he was a little scared to go out. (laughs) He was like, because when you hunt, you're mostly alone. He's like, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, that would be unsettling. But I love the, I mean, at least it's not malicious or scary. It's like these these spirits are just trying to protect the animals in the land where they live. And I'm all about that. Isn't that that. beautiful? Right? I loved it so much. And too, it's. It's not like it can be explained away by saying like, oh, maybe there is a group of Native people in the area that have, you know, like are practicing some ceremony or what have you, because it's this guy's property. Like my dad, I mean, my dad, my brother knows this guy. Like it is, it's his land. And when people have hunting land, there are trail cams, like deer cams set up everywhere. They've never caught anything. No. But I mean, I guess um, that that to me is like proof that it's not humans, right? Because right, you would right. absolutely capture people walking through the woods with drums. Uh, I just – I feel like there's probably so many caught on camera ghosts or ghosts caught on camera that we just haven't seen because people are uh, not yes. – like people aren't necessarily watching back their security cameras every day or – they see something, but they don't really think much of it. And I'm like, I just want my hands I on know. that footage. You know what? Everybody keeps talking about AI and facial recognition and all that stuff. And I think that someone needs to make some <laughs> update where it does file away on all these cameras. Things that, that could be, could be a Cryptids, spirit, could be paranormal. a cryptid. Yes. And it sends it to we an can app, create that. which is reviewed by us so that we get to say whether it's something oh. or not. Professionals. Professional 
security footage reviewers finding spirit i that's us <laughs> it's a new branch a new division ghost hunters wait what no okay what would our name be like ghost bureau of investigation gbi yeah, the gbi the there GBI. we go i love Ooh, it i want like really cool uniforms and patches hell yeah see yeah, this is GBI. Cool. i feel like this is out of all the ideas we've spewed – actually, maybe I'm, like, really losing touch with reality. <laughs> I was just about to say, out of all the businesses and ideas we've ever put out, I feel like this is pretty realistic. <laughs> well, it won't be government-recognized yet. We, I think we have to prove, prove ourselves and our worth first. But I think we could put together a pretty decent proposal. I think so, too. That will go right to the president's office. Oh, yeah. And – Right on his desk, it will be the first thing he gets in his briefings. Yeah, and but we actually, we, we, will be we go into the White House, but we don't <laughs> go into the room that the president is in. Instead, yeah. we go to an adjacent room or a room under, and we utilize the air vents to go oh. and deliver yes. our message. It's like, this yes. is why we need this, because you just experienced a haunting yourself <laughs> two seconds ago. It absolutely well, wasn't say- us. They do say the White House is haunted, so I don't True. even think we have to do much work. I bet I so everyone who works there knows already. Maybe we should start writing a letter a day that just says, can you just tell us what you know about aliens? Come on. Please. Like, we won't tell anyone, I promise. Yes. <sighs> Which is actually a great transition because I am covering aliens today. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Okay. I have a kitty on my lap and she is like fully resting her chin on my arm. So mm. I'm one handed with my iPad today. But of course, so you never move for your cute, adorable pets. No, but that's fine. Should I, should I give a little like view of what she looks like? Yeah. Pan right. the camera down for a moment. Let's see. Some camera work. Oh, look at that, sweetie. Honestly, this is the first time I feel like she's ever been asleep during recording. I feel like normally she's just running around screaming. So. This is great. <laughs> it is great. She's doing really well. I'm proud of you, sweet girl. Good little baby. But the this second is also, we say that, she's going to go She's going to wake up. But people do say that cats are aliens of sorts. So I feel like it all comes full circle. And also and people that say that I'm an alien of I sorts. was just about to say we get multiple <laughs> comments saying that you are a starseed. Starseed. So. Yeah. I would love to think that. But I think And I'm you can needy. think that. I always think of someone made a he's just not that into you that movie the the um poster for it they mm-hmm. made it but it was aliens and me and it was <laughs> they're just not that into you and it's the best thing I've ever seen didn't we I think we posted that on our social media when we had it I think so we'll have to dig it up and okay so I'm actually really excited about this it was suggested to us by our listeners Kathy and Milani who are our Patreon donors And I'm so grateful that they picked this because I had never heard of it before. And as many of you know, or maybe perhaps you're learning right now, I love aliens and I'm severely jealous of anyone who's been abducted by aliens or had encounters with aliens. Mm -hmm. But this story had me wavering in my resolve a bit and reconsidering my entire life's desires and goals. And I'm not so sure. I like that yeah. it's just like it's not even a desire anymore. It's just a goal, <laughs> like a bucket list of things. It, where when I when I manifest, I think that's like it used to be number one on my list. But my friends, my spooky pals, I may have changed my okay. mind. 
This is the abduction of Mona Stafford, Louise Smith, and Elaine Thomas. It has been extensively studied, researched, and documented, and is considered one of the most convincing and evidence-rich cases of alien abductions to date. Wow. Okay. And if you don't believe in aliens, then perhaps after this story, you will. You will. But if you're like, girl, you won't convince me. I never will believe in aliens. Then, hey, you have two options. Either A, turn this off, don't listen, or B, enjoy a story and, I don't know, hang out for an hour. Join the club or go home. (laughs) (laughs) Two options. And if you don't believe, they'll make you believe. Ooh, ominous. (laughs) Anyway, okay, the date is January 6th, 1976. Mona Stafford was celebrating her 36th birthday And she thought, what better way to do that than go to dinner at Redwood Restaurant in Lancaster, Kentucky, with her two closest friends, Louise Smith and Elaine Thomas. They drove the 30-something miles from their hometown of Liberty, Kentucky, and had themselves a very delightful, drink-free evening celebrating Mona's birthday. But the joy, the laughter, and the quality time that they had experienced at dinner was soon to be forgotten, for the night was about to take a horrifying life-altering turn that would leave the three women lost, confused, and traumatized. So they finished dinner and they were driving home. It's around 11.15 p.m. Louise was driving her 1967 Chevy. I can't remember what model it was, but I don't know cars. It was one of those things where I was, I think I was listening to another podcast about this and I had to rewind like four times to try to hear the make of the car. And then I tried to Google it and no. I was like, cars go over my None head. of the sources gave you the answer. Yeah. Or they did, yes. but just no comprende. Yeah. And let me actually give a shout out to a podcast that I listened to because it was extremely helpful and informative. Hillbilly Horror Stories. Ooh. Oh, I've heard of them. I need to start It's listening. a great, like, very well produced show. I was like, wow, the music? It's great. So it's 11.15 p.m. Louise is driving. Mona's in the passenger seat and Elaine was in the back. They're driving southwest along Route 78 in the Stanford, Kentucky area when all of a sudden Mona sees something in the sky and she points it out to her two friends and they all look and see a bright red glowing object in the sky. And it's pretty far in the distance, so it's not really clear what it is, Mm -hmm. but they know it's not a star and it's moving. So they're all squinting out the car window to observe what this thing is. And they can't really make out the details, but one of them's like, is that a plane on fire crashing? Oh, gosh. Coming at them, too. That would be so scary. Yeah. Like if someone's trying to maneuver onto the road and you're there with your friends also on that road. So this is terrifying. It's coming closer and closer to them. The three women are terrified. Not only are they, like, witnessing potentially a horrific plane crash and accident, but its trajectory is directly towards them. But then something strange happens. Without pressing on the gas, Louise's car began to speed up. She looks at her friends in panic. Her foot is not on the pedal. And despite pressing the brake, the car kept picking up speed. So this road, I looked it up. I think it was 40 miles per hour is the speed limit. I don't know necessarily if that's the same thing in 1976, but it's picking up speed to the point where it gets to 85 miles per hour without Louise pressing on the pedal with her trying to press the brake. She has no control of the car. She's trying to hold the steering wheel and has no control. I would think that I was about to die. 1,000%. 
I mean, think about the chaos. It's You see this burning object coming towards you. Your car is now out of control. Mona grabs the steering wheel and is trying to help, but like it was like the car Herbie fully loaded. It just had a mind of its own. <laughs> there, there was no control. Isn't that, isn't that the Lindsay Lohan movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that's a remake, that though. That juxtaposition, though, is like <laughs> just a horrifying what we know because of the topic to be an alien encounter. And you're like, yeah, like the Lindsay Lohan, Herbie fully loaded. <laughs> I'm trying to think like what other what other movie does the car take a life of its own? And that cars, was all that came to mind. The entire yeah, franchise. <laughs> but, but that's animated. Saying like it went mater is not necessarily like, you know, Herbie fully loaded. <laughs> I don't know. Just It just felt right. Now, whenever anyone loses control or I feel a lack of control over my emotions, I'm going to be like, oh, going matered. <laughs> they went matered. Uh, going Herbie, going matered. Okay. So they are losing control of the car and it's just chaotic. They're, you know, they realize now, so they're like panicking with the car and then they realize that they look up and they're like, wait, that object that was falling out of the sky is no longer falling towards them. And one of them has a realization that's because it is now behind them, trailing them. So this So it already crossed over them, but they just didn't notice in the franticness of trying to control the car. Yeah. So it it is now behind them, following them. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is not a plane that, that is crashing or on fire. This is something so outside of our understanding. And I can't even imagine the thought process going on because it probably happened so quickly. Mm And so much is happening all at once that it's just like your brain I can I can hardly imagine my brain keeping up, you know? Right. So all of a sudden, next thing they know, this quote unquote craft flips on its side and comes parallel to the driver's side of the car. So it's behind them and now it's right next to them. Honestly, maybe it's a good thing that they couldn't control the car because I feel like if I were in this scenario, I might crash the car. You've gone mater. I've gone matered. But honestly, like, right? Like, I'm glad that something is projecting them forward because otherwise witnessing this whole thing, I'd be, I, oh, we'd be off the road in a second. I'd probably faint. Yeah. Flight, fight, wait, fight, flight, flight, freeze. Freeze. I kind of like combined all of them into one for a lot Or just faint. I think that's the fourth one we keep forgetting about. We can't forget about that one. So this thing is now hovering parallel beside the car on its side keeping pace with them, but also probably manipulating. I mean, 100%. It's the one, it's a thing manipulating the car as mm-hmm. well. They're looking at this object in utter horror. And they later on went on to describe this in the exact same way. So I'll explain what they saw. It was an enormous disc-shaped object with a dome on top with a ring of red lights around its midsection and a yellow blinking light on the bottom of the aircraft. Okay. So to me, it sounds very much like a traditional, what right. you would expect of a, a UFO or a spaceship. Yeah. And the light at the bottom kind of feels like where the light comes out to beam people up. Yeah. And then there's a quote from Mona, which I'll read. She said, The dome was blinding and it reflected on a metallic surface, which I'm sure was more than 100 feet wide. So as I'm trying to imagine this. I'm trying to picture the size of it. Right. You, you know? and I both struggle with spatial awareness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm also blind. But how tall, how, like, I don't know how tall a story is, 
But if it's like 12 feet, then we could say eight or so stories high, right? Yeah, but I'm trying to picture like it flipped on its side. So this is much bigger than the car, right? So it's like, yeah, I don't, it's, uh, it's hard to picture on this, you know, country Kentucky road, how massive this thing is next to them. Right. And how close is it? And where is the tree line? Because yeah. I'm like, how, is how there does a tree line? something even tilt? That's true. I know. Kentucky, it might not, is that t- technically tornado country m- maybe? So it's pretty yeah. flat. So I just I don't, was trying yeah. to look up. I tried to look up the exact location on a map where it happened and I couldn't, but I did follow along the Kentucky Route 78. I looked at it and like the route that they would have taken. All I know that it was in the Stanford area of Route 78 because this is often called the Stanford abduction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So this UFO, as I will call it, because that's just what it was, is like this following along with them, keeping pace for a couple of minutes. And then, and I think that the car is still going out of control. They have no control of it. Can't press anything there. It's just, they are in for the ride. Horrifying, horrifying ride. Mona said that it felt like the car was being pulled and we were going over a long straight road, even though Route 78 is like pretty windy and far from straight. Elaine hmm. remarked, it felt like we were going over road bumps or flying in air pockets, like on a plane. Oh, okay. Which part of me makes – that makes me wonder if they were hovering. Like what if they're right. not even on the road? Especially if they're going straight. I was thinking the same thing because even if there's just the slightest curve, you feel it in a car. Yeah. And then after a few minutes, the aircraft shoots ahead of them on the highway and shoots out three bluish white beams of light that illuminated the inside of the car so much that it was like they were just dosed with sunlight. And it was bright and blinding. Apparently, with it came a hazy fog-like substance that caused Louise, Mona, and Elaine to have a burning sensation in their eyes. Oh, ooh. It's like, it's gas. There's some sort of gas that is irritating them, their skin, their eyes, their lungs. Yeah. Well, because then the next thing that they remember is coming to in the car in a pasture entrance just outside of Houstonville, which is eight miles from where they had previously been when they first saw the spacecraft or UFO. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, that's like 15, 20 minutes. I'm trying to math again. I'm trying to think about like the miles I'm per hour. <laughs> That you had said earlier. But yeah. like that's it's not like, oh, they popped up three minutes down the road. Like that's that's a good chunk of time. Well, what's even more wild is that when they come to, they're all shaken up, understandably so, but they realize they lost an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah. And also their skin, where they had been ex- like any exposed skin that they had, like if they were wearing t shirts, whatever they were wearing, yeah. was burning. Like they had a burning sensation on their skin. <sighs> Maybe it's from the gas of whatever was in the air when they were abducted. Yeah. And and they're horrified and confused and just none of them can explain what's going on. Uh, The the only thing they can do is like, we need to get out of here because we don't want to sit around and wait for whatever that was to come Mm -hmm. back. So they go to Louise's house in Liberty. And by by the time they got there, it was 1.25 a.m. So keep in mind, all of this stuff happened at 11.15 p.m. This drive should not have taken more than 45 to 50 minutes total, door-to-door, from the Redwood restaurant to Louise's home. No more than 50 minutes. They should have been home before midnight. So they're like so confused. They see the kitchen clock. It's 1.25 a.m. And they're just like, how is it possible that we lost an hour and 20 plus minutes? 
they're, they, it's just hard for them to grasp. So they go over to the neighbor's house. And very, also, like, let's up. remember that they were sober. They didn't have any yes. alcohol at dinner. Yeah. So they're very shaken up. They go over to Louise's neighbor's house to confirm the time. And I, this makes me miss the like good old days of the friendly neighborhood be, or neighbors because I mean, granted, I live in a compound where it's like all my friends, but I'm imagining like living in a neighborhood nowadays, like you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily best friends or close enough with your next door neighbors to like go knock over at 1.25 in the morning and be like, hey, can you help me? Right. So Louise, Mona, and Elaine go over to the neighbors and the neighbor confirms it's 1.25 a.m. Louise also looks at her wristwatch and even stranger, the hour hand is moving like the seconds hand. So it is her watch says 6 a.m. And it's just not working properly. And the neighbor, I'm, I, this is making me nervous. I know. I and yeah. And there's so much that comes out, and yeah. Well, we'll get there. But so the neighbor actually seemed to be very like calming and helpful in the situation. It was like, okay, here's what you need to do. Let's write down everything you remember. Let's draw everything you remember just to get it down right now, and then we'll call for help. And so they call the police station, but the police were like, what? This that we can't help you. I'm sorry. What are you trying to say? Like this is out of our purview. We have no, we don't deal with UFOs. If right. that's what they're calling it, you well, know. Also, imagine getting a call from someone who sounds frantic that said that a giant saucer of metal that first looked like a fireball came over next to them, and now their skin is itchy and they can't remember the past ninety minutes. You'd be like. Okay. I mean, we wouldn't. Right. But I imagine someone else might be like, what have you been smoking? Exactly. And also, I'm not necessarily sure how Mona, Elise, and Elaine were describing this if they were even in a place where they could say like, oh, I think we saw a UFO. It sounds like they were just so shaken up that they didn't even know how to process what they experienced. Mm -hmm. So it might have been hard to communicate. But yes, 100%, the police were just like, hey, not our place. Sorry, we can't help you. (sighs) So these three women are just like helpless and have no idea what to do. They're very confused by what happened, but they go to bed. And they awake the next morning in physical pain. Their skin was raw. They had blisters, pounding headaches, and burning eyes. And again, they wake up. They are sure that something happened to them. And they call the Navy recruiting station for help. And then the Navy recruiting station then calls the Lexington television station. And within like a day, it becomes front page. Oh, okay. Wait, so they went to the Navy for help. And then the Navy immediately went to the press? And like out at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and now we get to hear the story. So am I mad? No. But and also the <laughs> Navy, the Navy's always been I mean, Navy has always come out, or I'm saying always, but in the history of the past, let's say 15 years, they were some of the first to come forward and say, We see weird shit in the sky. Yeah. And in the so ocean. Much. And right. aliens are real. So we're team them. When it comes yeah, to I mean, I think that this is a perfect example of very similar to true crime or, you know, stories of murder where people get so caught up in the story that they forget there are real people behind it who are suffering and dealing with it. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing with this story. Like, oh, aliens. Oh, my gosh. How cool. We need to tell the world and get it out there. But they're forgetting that these three women had to go through something horrific in order for there to be a story. And they're wearing the physical evidence as well as the mental, too. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so it becomes front page news very quickly, and poor Louise, Mona, and Elaine, who were just looking for help, now are confronted with a media circus. People are showing up, asking them for quotes, asking to interview them, and they are just trying to process and cope this traumatic event that they have no explanation for. And then ufologists, I think that's how you say it, ufologists, ufologists. I wonder if Ologies has an episode on ufologists. If, if not, not, let's tell Allie. We're waiting, we Allie. We are not professional. We just <laughs> no, want to no, listen no. to that. We'll tell Allie oh, because <laughs> we want to listen. Not that yes. we know anything. Yeah. So then a bunch of ufologists are, you know, naturally very interested in this and want to get information on it as well. But like I said, a lot of them are doing it for selfish reasons. They're like, oh, we don't – not that they're – deliberately and consciously saying, oh, we don't care about Mona Louise and Elaine and what they Mm -hmm. went through, but they are without, they're not caring about them as humans. They're just like, oh, tell us everything. What happened? I want to know. Right. And it's, it's hard. I mean, you get wrapped up because it's such a, it feels like such a sensational story and it's exciting and you want to hear more. And then it's easy to forget about the person who it happened to because in the grand scheme of things, not again to say that they're that you shouldn't consider these person the, these people or what they went through, but I imagine yeah. that the amount of people that were like this is such an epic story and understanding what happened feels like such a big priority to understand future encounters with the UFOs. Yeah, I yeah. get how people got down that rabbit hole and kind Wrapped of forgot into, about these. Yeah, yeah, these three women. Definitely. But Elaine, Mona, and Louise denied any requests for interviews for any – just they were basically like, we're not doing this. But then entered Jerry Black. At this point in time, Jerry had spent 20 years researching UFOs and worked with the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON. And when he heard about the Stanford case, he was intrigued and started doing his own research. And I think at this point, Jerry was a little bit discouraged by all of the research he had been doing. He spent 20 years looking into UFOs and aliens and abductions and everything and talking to people who said that they had experiences, but there was just little evidence that was concrete that he almost was like, I might need to give up on this. Mm. And he approached Mona, Louise, and Elaine with a more humane approach, but they all denied his first attempt at a request to speak, but Jerry was persistent and finally convinced them to talk by appealing to their psychological mindsets and was like, hey, maybe talking about it could be healing. I promise, I'm pretty sure he promised he wouldn't share anything that they talk about with press Mm -hmm. unless they felt comfortable. And he also promised he would bring his wife with him so that Louise, Elaine, and Mona felt more comfortable and had a female presence. I love that. That's smart. Yes. Yes, very. And ultimately, I do think there is a lot of desire amongst all three of these women to have some type of understanding. And they reached a point where they were like, we need to do something or try something. So they went forward with an interview process with Jerry Black. And I think Jerry came with a a bunch of other people involved in the MUFON network. And immediately upon the first meeting of Mona Stafford, Louise Smith, Elaine Thomas, Jerry Black, and his wife and company on February 29th, it was very clear how much of an impact this potential, this is just the word that they use, to me, very clear, abduction had been on all three of them. And I read that they did not use the terms alien or abduction at all until Mona, Elaine, and Louise used them because they didn't want to project something onto them or make them be more frightful. Right. Exactly. 
All three women were exhausted and worn down. So the abduction happened on January 6th, 1976. This is now February 29th. So it's a little bit more than a month past. They have all at this point lost a significant amount of weight. Their eyes appeared sunken in. Mm. They looked so frail and had just this unease and they they were very shaken. Do you think it was from the trauma? I think it was a combination of the trauma and also something physical happened to them during this encounter because they all three had developed in an unquenchable thirst that like mm. they would drink so much water and never, ever, ever feel satiated. Which, they lost excessive weight, which could how, be a combo. How much time was this after the abduction? Over a month. Okay. Okay. Never mind. I was going to say maybe gross, but like maybe they lost a lot of blood and they were trying oh, to get the liquid back in them. But over a month, that would not, that's not accurate right. for water consumption. Louise also on this first meeting, like pulled back the hair on her, off her neck and revealed on the nape of her neck was a round pinkish gray block, the size of a half dollar, not block, blotch, sorry, words. So it was like a marking the size of a half dollar Mm. on her neck. Elaine told Jerry and the other investigators that she was terrified for her two friends because she was watching Louise and Mona really like be worn out to the point where she was like, I think they're going to have a breakdown. And I'm sure she was speaking for herself as well, but she was projecting it in like a, I'm concerned for my friends. Louise could hardly manage regular day-to-day activities, let alone go to work and perform her tasks. And after, this is so wild to me, after returning home from the incident on January 6th, Louise's beloved parakeet, who she had a great relationship with, became horrified of her. Like when she walked in to her place, the parakeet flew into the side of its cage, like squawking, trying to escape her. Oh no. Oh no. Wait, is she the one that has the blotch on Mm -hmm. her? I wonder what happened, what was put in her right. that is making this animal have animal instincts, which is, this is a predator now. I'm scared. I need yeah. to stay away. Yeah. Oh, that gives me chills. Like what? Like it's almost like it altered her being. Mm-hmm. Mona was suffering from an inflammation of her eye and she had a doctor prescribe eye drops. She like had an eye exam and just nothing helped. All three were terribly afraid to know what happened. By this time, they had heard the term alien abduction and were possibly under the impression it could have been what they experienced, but they were restraining themselves from really using that term because they were like, we don't remember anything. Their memories were just blank. Nearly 90 minutes of their lives, just gone. Poof. Right. So this all comes out in the first meeting. And by the end of it, they conclude that these women had most certainly gone through something very traumatic. They were not making up a story about, you know, whatever for sensationalization or for attention, whatever it might be. This had truly happened to them. And it was very clear Mm -hmm. to everyone in the room. So the ufologists and Jerry Black were like, we need to help these women. We're going to conduct research, document our findings, and help Louise, Mona, and Elaine recover their memories. If they couldn't do that, they'd at least assist them in their psychological recovery And again, promised to keep any and all details of the event confidential until all three were strong enough and decided on their own terms that the information could be made public. So like I had said, the parakeet story with Louise, they ran a test. They brought in multiple birds and multiple subjects, and they saw how the birds would react. So they basically had a bunch of birds. They brought in normal people like you and I. I guess we're not normal, but we're special. We're special. But the birds reacted normally. 
But every time Louise came in, the birds would panic and freak out and display indications of high stress. But not to the other women who were abducted, only to her, who had the patch on her neck. I don't know if they brought in Mona and Elaine as well. I think they just brought in like random test subjects. Okay. Sadly, just three months after the abduction, Louise's parakeet died of unexplainable reasons. And Uh uh-oh. This is also strange. So, I mean, all three of the women had like a lot of side effects and implications that occurred to them after the abduction or, you know, they're not using the term yet. But Louise herself seemed truly to be have been altered in some way. Not only are birds reacting strangely to her, Every electronic seems to react strangely to her. Her wristwatch is spinning incorrectly. Like I said, like her, like any watch she wears, it starts working improperly. She once touched the clock on her bedside and it too stopped working properly. Then her car, the one that she had driven that night, had a long laundry list of problems. The engine would die. The lights would go out. It just basically wouldn't work. Something is in her. Yes, exactly. Something was put in her. Yes. Which, oh, like did they not? figure out what was under the patch of skin I don't like why wow. that would be one of the first things like shove i know well also i don't i mean i'm not a medical professional but maybe there are i i don't know how dangerous that would be to not know what's in someone yeah. and to still stick them in a machine like what if that like don't they say with mris combust? you can't have metal on or something right exactly yeah so a large part of this investigation included hypnosis regression they called in Dr. Leo Sprinkle, I love his name. (laughs) He was a consultant from the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Dr. Sprinkle worked as a psychologist for the University of Wyoming and was trained in hypnosis. They believed that they could use the hypnosis to access the repressed memories and discover what occurred during the missing hour and 20 minutes during the presumed abduction. So, on March 7th of 1976, this is now two full months after the encounter, Mona Stafford was the first to agree to hypnosis. So on March 7th, she's the only one who goes. I think Elaine and Louise were just not ready. She mm-hmm. went to see Dr. Sprinkle. And as the session began, Mona was able to walk Dr. Sprinkle through the events of January 6th, going to dinner, driving home, the object in the sky, the car picking up speed, the spacecraft hovering by the car, the bright light. But then it became too much and Mona panicked. She was unable to access the missing time and it was causing her too much emotional turmoil. So she ended the session. After this session, Mona moved away because it was just too hard for her. I think she moved in with her parents. She continued to partake in interviews and was open to talking to Jerry and other investigators but she was no longer living right near her friends Elaine and Louise. And one afternoon, a ufologist Leonard Stringfield was asking Mona if she saw the entities. But Mona didn't remember. So Stringfield used drawings from other alien encounters. So he basically like did a lineup of aliens and set and was like... But without telling her that they were aliens? Yeah, I mean, I think... Or had they at this point said, like, this is a UFO alien abduction? Yeah, I guess I don't know specifically when they started using the term, but I just know that they were very careful with how they used the terms. Mm, Okay. So Stringfield shows these images of aliens, and Mona pointed one saying that that's what she saw. And she, like, has this recollection of the face wasn't solid. That it was able to come and go and fade in and out like a fog, ooh, which is strange. Mm -hmm. Later on, Elaine Thomas pointed to the same figure, 
And this was the first time in the entire case that the ufologist felt comfortable. Oh, this didn't answer your question. This is the first time in the case that they were like, okay, we're going to say aliens. This is an alien encounter. Emphasis Mm -hmm. on aliens. Also, just really quick, you said that the face didn't always appear as a face. It came and went sort of like a fog. What if the gas, gaseous Mm. fog that first encapsulated them and burned them was the beings themselves? Like, what if they are just this giant cloud of matter? That's so fascinating. Like a collective being that can kind of doesn't that spur make off you into different think that it can then become anything? Yeah, mm-hmm. Ooh. right. Or at least present itself as. I don't know if it will look fully solid as that thing. I mean, it's kind of like, like the demons. Still kind of looked cloudy. Like demons, how they manipulate and yes. mimic other things. Mm-hmm. So we really could be walking among them. What if demons are just aliens? <laughs> Brain blast. <laughs> interesting i don't want to believe that just because i feel like behavior wise they're so different and also Mm -hmm. i don't like the to imagine demons driving like spacecrafts i feel like that's such an alien thing let's not take that away from them okay (laughs) respect respect we come in peace yeah (laughs) they don't come in peace in this story apparently okay so they're using the word aliens there is some criticism that has been received based on this specific part of the story because they were like Stringfield basically led the witnesses or the victims like they mm, by giving okay. them the images like they had said before that that they didn't remember seeing the entities so if he showed them images and she was like oh it was that I mean it perhaps could have triggered a memory absolutely but I think there's just some criticism of like did this mislead them did it impact the investigation in a way After this, the investigation lost some steam and money. They didn't really have funding. So then Jerry Black was like, I really think there's more to be done here. And I think he helped cover the costs. He paid for Dr. Sprinkle to come to Kentucky and run more hypnosis sessions with Elaine, Mona, and Louise. And in June of 1976, Sprinkle came to the Brown Motel in Liberty, Kentucky to start a series of hypnosis sessions. It was June 23rd, 1976. Dr. Sprinkle, Jerry Black, and Bob Pratt of the National Enquirer were all in attendance. And the three women to start this underwent a polygraph lie detector test. And all three passed with flying colors to the point where I'm pretty sure they brought in like a detective or a police officer to run the polygraph. And this police officer Mm -hmm. was like, aliens aren't real. I don't believe in any of this. And by the time... He had finished conducting the lie detector test. He like looked at all three men who were there, was like, I'm, I am going to eat my words. Oh my gosh. I love this. Mm-hmm. I love having a non believer turn show up yeah. and turn, turn. Yeah. They all, cause they all went individually and all of their stories were the same and there was no hint of deception. So over the next few days, all three women underwent hypnosis. And in total, I think there's eight hours of hypnosis that they went through wow. together. Like not like at not at the same time, but it just in accumulation. Mm-hmm. Collectively. And they recorded them all. And Jerry Black has said that it was it is it was really, really hard to experience. And even it, he has a hard time listening back to those recordings because there's so much of the recordings that is just the women in pain. And crying, and mm-hmm. you can you can feel the fear. He said that when he was witnessing it, like they would contort their bodies. They were just it was really really physical for them to relive. 
Oh, wow. But over the course of the eight hours, the events of the missing time slowly started to come forth. So I'm going to go through the series of things that kind of came forward during these hypnosis. They all agreed that they were taken aboard some kind of craft and subjected to physical examination, which bordered on torturous. There seemed to be no sexual assault or sexual invasion, but that all three women were positioned and restrained in an uncomfortable and embarrassing manners. Mona Stafford recalled being placed on a white table in a dark and uncomfortably hot room and a chair-like device. Louise Smith said she was enveloped by a strange darkness, and Elaine Thomas recalled being in a strange capsule with a weird noose device around her neck, which tightened painfully if she tried to think or even tried to speak. Okay, that's really scary. Yeah. All three noted being scanned by instruments that put pressure on their limbs. Mona was examined by an eye-like apparatus and a bright white light with a power or ability to hold her down. She said she was placed in front of a web-like structure and covered in a liquid surface that burned her skin. She felt quite a bit of pressure around her eyes and remembered being examined by small individuals with surgical gear and masks on. At one point while under hypnosis, Mona made a comment saying it was like being in a volcano. And I'm going to read a quote from her. This was she, this was like recorded in the hypnosis. It was a long tunnel, dark inside with an opening at the top. It's clear now. At the end, I can see an operating room. Everything is white, a white round light shining on a white table, and I can see four small beings around the table. They have a tube on somebody's stomach. It's a woman there on the table, but I can't tell who it is. Maybe it's me on that table being examined. So That is so scary. So she is remembering seeing herself outside of her body, which, I mean, perhaps... You know, people have said during traumatic events that they like disassociate and leave their bodies. And Mm -hmm. is she looking back down at herself being examined by these aliens because it's just so hard for her to process? Or is that just in hypnosis how she's able to get herself back? Oh, that's interesting. Her soul is, you know, the whole like, what even is time? Yeah. Bringing her to that point to witness it. Yeah. As it happened. Oh, it's so unsettling. Everything, everywhere, all the time. I love that movie. Elaine Thomas remembered being in a chamber with a window and recalled seeing four-foot-tall, gray-skinned humanoids with dark eyes walking back and forth around this chamber. She Mm. also remembered a bullet-shaped object placed above her left breast at one point. Then there was Louise, who remembered the least. She said that she was pulled backwards out of the driver's seat and enveloped in the darkness and drenched in a liquid that burned her skin, similar to Mona. She could hardly move and was so dehydrated. And unfortunately, after her first session of hypnosis, Louise declined any further sessions and was like, I can't, this is too painful and too hard, I don't want to remember. And to this day, the Stanford abduction case is known as one of the most well-documented abduction cases in UFO history. There was so much research and studies done on Elaine Thomas, Mona Stafford, and Louise Smith, And while the world feels justified in their conviction that this is like, oh, this was 100% an alien abduction, these three women were dramatically impacted and traumatized by the events. A couple months after Louise's hypnosis, the ufologist contacted her to check in, and this is now July 29th, 1976, 
and Louise was basically bedridden and said she was too sick to go to work anymore. She told researchers that just 24 hours prior to their call, she had awoken in the middle of the night to a voice that it called her to the place of the abduction. And despite being afraid, she drove there. Like she found herself in her car, drove there in the middle of the night and she got out of her car, stood in this spot of the road and apparently felt a tugging at her hands. And at that moment, she like freaked out and panicked and got back in her car. It's 3 a.m. She returns to her car and drives home. But on the drive home, she looks to her hands and realizes that two of her rings had vanished. So that tugging oh. on her hands, oh, something pulled yes. off her rings. And these, Ew. And okay, the, you said that they could appear as anything, and clearly, vapor as as nothing, as nothing, yes. is still something. So, and these are rings. Like I don't know, Karina, you're, you're probably experienced this. Like these rings don't come off. Like I have to no. wear, I have to put lotion on or something to really take them off. That and that's what I got little chubby tapered fingers. <laughs> they really give a good grip yeah. onto this metal. Yeah, and my skin is like growing around them now. But um right. Louise said that these are rings that she usually has to use lotion to take off. It's not like they're gonna just accidentally fall off in the road. And she even went back with a police officer to look in that area for her rings, could not find them. And then randomly, two months later, she opens her front door and guess what's sitting by her front door? The two rings. Shut the fuck up. They disappeared mysteriously. Over what? time, these three women remembered more information. Mona remembered that the three of them were separated. And Mona apparently remembers leaving the original ship and going to another ship that had three floors. Oh, okay. This makes me sad that they were all separated too. I know. When the abduction happened and all underwent. Also, Let me take a moment to say, I wish there should be some sort of like galactic law as to what you can do when you abduct someone because (laughs) they clearly severely injured these women. Yes. Yes. It was torture. Yeah. That will be another branch of GBI. We'll draft intergalactic laws. Yeah. For the aliens to follow. The Galactic Bureau of Investigation. It's still GBI. (laughs) Okay. I like this. Um. Louise also remembered that the entities and aliens were hoods and their eyes were frightening and large and their hands were like bird wings, like very large. And so again, they're kind of like amorphous and like different. Mm. There is an image that Louise drew here. I'll show you. We'll have our editors added in too. Oh, uh, I'm getting Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle from this. Yeah. The notes on it says dark hood and dark suit, gray hands, couldn't see body from waist down. Hmm. It's so interesting that it they did appear as so many different types of yeah. beings, right? Like, yeah. is this just one creature that just has so many different appearances or can morph? Or are these multiple alien creatures that are all, like, living as a collective oh, on these various spaceships? Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, and that's the hard thing. It's like, how can we ever know unless we get reincarnated as aliens? So then Mona encountered, she believes she encountered the extraterrestrials again. She said she had been living with her parents for a while, but one night decided to go back to her own home. And while she was there, she heard a voice in her head that told her to turn around. So she did. And she saw a creature that was five feet tall with reddish hair, a beard, and wearing a shiny robe. The creature gave her a telepathic command to look into his eyes. And Mona was like, I can't do that. She ignored it. But then all of a sudden she forgets 
She forgot what happened. Like she lost some more time. And as when she came back into like consciousness, the creature said, Yuri, mm-hmm. the mind is still hungry. And then it vanished. M- Mona That's like, creepy. oh, terrified. So Mona like is horrified. She goes back to her parents' house and is trying to understand what Bury and the way that she wrote it was B-U-R-E-E. She looked it up in the dictionary. She tried to find what that meant, but then mm-hmm. couldn't find anything and was like, maybe I misheard it. Maybe Bury is like a higher being. I don't know. But it does sound like this entity was so different from the aliens. It could have been paranormal because apparently all three women who were abducted afterwards had an increased, like, they just had a ton of paranormal. Sensitivity to the paranormal. Yeah, they had a ton of paranormal experiences after that, some of which did not involve UFOs or aliens. For a while, Mona lived in Florida and eventually moved back to Kentucky. Louise Smith eventually moved to Las Vegas. And unfortunately, Elaine Thomas died in 1978 of unknown causes. And I mm. will show you a picture of the three women. Oh, there they are. That's I love their outfits. I know. And then this is a drawing that Elaine drew on, I think it says, it's dated January 6, 1976, which is the day of the abduction. Or maybe, maybe she dated it because that's when the abduction happened. I don't know. But this mm. is an image that Elaine drew. Wow. Wow. Ew. Oh. Yeah. That that honestly looks like an image that a cartoonist would have yeah. done to depict an alien abduction. Yeah. So we'll put those Man. in the video for everyone to see and we'll post it on our social medias as well. But that is the Stanford abduction, which was the abduction of Mona Stafford, Louise Smith, and Elaine Thomas. My God. I feel so horrible for these women. Yeah. Because I feel like there are so many abduction stories where it is traumatic, where you do lose time, where you aren't sure what happened to you or or these strange physical markings that you now wear. But usually I feel like it ends sort of at that. But this – the fact that their skin burned, yeah. that they had these weird – patches on themselves that their own pets turned against them it's just horrible the things that continued to happen to them over time yeah it's really devastating and they had no i mean called back yeah and there's just no resolve to be summoned there's no no way to i mean anything traumatic that happens is terrible don't get me wrong i'm not trying to like negate or minimize anything else but like this is something that very few people experience so there's no support groups there's no there's no like, no. hey, we've experienced this too. I mean, I'm glad that they had each other, but. Well, I imagine even having each other would be tough because after going through something like that and recalling it in the hypnosis, to remember your friend being tortured on a table yeah. or ripped away into another room, seeing their face is a reminder of the own pain and trauma that you went through. Yeah. So while it does feel good to have that support, I imagine sometimes it could be triggering, you know, certain facial expressions, Absolutely. certain looks, certain moments that you just get brought back to that moment again. Right. And also if you're trying to move on, maybe, you know, there's three different women and everyone processes things differently. Like maybe one of them is super reliant on the others. And then maybe another one like Louise after that hypnosis session was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like I can't participate in these. I don't mm-hmm. want to know. And it sounded like Mona and Elaine wanted to know more. And that would cause rifts between their, you know, between them as well. I can't even imagine like getting in a car again after that. No. Driving that road ever again. 
Oh my going gosh, to that I restaurant. could never. There's just probably so many triggers. I wouldn't ever want to be outside at night or in a car at night. Never. I would be so scared. Yeah, to- yeah. So I was listening to, let me pull it up, Somewhere in the Skies. Mm-hmm. That is a podcast that centers all around UFOs. Ooh. And they had done an episode on this and I had listened to it. And they actually have audio from, I think it might have been Mona from her hypnosis session. So I don't know how much of the hypnosis sessions are public, readily available, maybe exist in a documentary somewhere. Mm. But I'd also heard that there were other reports from around Mm -hmm. that area at the time. And one of them was from a farmer who had his farm like right there where these three women were driving. And he said that he saw a low-flying aircraft. Yeah. So the the whole community, in a sense, also experienced that. Yeah, I had read that. And I I think that there was some, you know, I think with anything, there's some debate of like, is this true or is it real? Because the the encounter became front page news very quickly. Right. And like, I think the researchers and investigators then later asked people in the area and it's very possible like they're, you know, I, I 100% believe that some people probably did see something, but I also believe mm-hmm. that there are probably people who heard the story and then wanted to be a part of it or, mm-hmm. or convinced themselves that they did see something as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Because there's plenty of things that I see that I'm like, wow, that's weird. And I mark it in my mind. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't post on social media yeah. about it. I don't report right. it to the local authorities. But if someone came out and said, did you see a strange fireball comet go across the sky that looked like it was about to end Earth <laughs> four years ago in this area? I'd be like, yeah, I actually did. Yeah. And most people would be like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, you did. So I understand that. And then also like you and I both talk about our dreams sometimes feeling so incredibly real that we're like, are we just living in our dreams in one of our other lives that exist close to us in in whatever sort of dimension we're in? What if our dreams too, like we can convince ourselves that we experienced something that we actually never did? Yeah. I mean, I told you there was a period of time over the summer that I was so convinced things had happened in real life, but they were just my dreams. Like it just was, it felt that mm-hmm. real. It's a little bit, yeah, confounding. Um, I mean, it could be yeah. real. It's just not, not in this here. dimension. Real somewhere else. <laughs> Your eyes. Well, I just want to dimension hop now. I think that's my new goal. I don't, alien abduction down at the bottom of the list. Dimension Ooh. hopping, top of the list. Top. We need just like a rotating list that we can just have live somewhere. <laughs> I want like the, a big show of it where, you know, kind of like Wheel of Fortune style. We have like this mm. giant thing and then we just have like these big wooden slats that we Ooh. move, you know, like yes. in first place. <laughs> it's like the stock market, up. but with our paranormal yes. desires. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we have a big party and, and a every celebration time. every time one of them moves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to celebrate it. We want the party. <laughs> we want the ceremony. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. Man. One of the scariest alien encounters and abductions I've ever heard. I'm definitely going to go on a deep dive after this and yeah. try to find. I, I feel torn because I want to hear the audio of them going through the hypnosis. And I obviously know it exists now because it was posted. Yeah. A clip of it was posted somewhere else. But at the same time, part of me is like, yeah, but that's traumatic for them. Like, why would, what if they never gave permission for that to be out there? Right. And now I'm seeking it out. Yeah. I feel torn. Yeah, I'm curious. I couldn't find like a, a documentary where any of the women were involved in it. So I am curious what happened because I know Elaine had passed away. I couldn't find information specifically 
on Mona or Louise and where they are now if they are still alive. So I don't know what happened after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe someone else does. Yeah. If you, maybe if someone's you know local. It's that area of Kentucky, right? Yeah. Like, maybe it exists within their town's lore. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone knows anything, let us know. Comment below. Please do. In the meantime, I have a listener story to read to you. Okay. And boy, oh boy, is it creepily similar is to it? this story that you just told us. <gasps> oh. Oh, yeah. It is. Okay. Okay. This is from Krista. Hello, ladies. Let's get right into it, shall we? I have two UFO stories that my grandmother has told me taking place in the 1950s in Fairfax, Virginia. My grandmother, Carol, has two siblings named Debbie and Linda, and they all decided to take their parents' car in the middle of the night to attend a party. On the way to the party, my grandmother mentioned how she had seen a light high up in the sky that seemingly followed them. Linda and Debbie wrote it off because they knew my grandmother's love of spooky shit Mm. and my grandmother loved to scare them. But unfortunately, my grandmother was not trying to scare them this time. A few minutes go by and she sees this big blue ball of light following them. Oh. And then suddenly it started getting closer and closer, almost hovering above the car. So similar. So similar. As it gets closer to the vehicle, the stereo messes up, causing Linda and Debbie to get irritated since it was playing one of their favorite songs. Not like the big light in the sky was any of their worries, (laughs) just the radio. (laughs) Do not turn off my favorite song. Do not. Suddenly, the light dropped down right above the car and shined this huge light. All of them started screaming, panicking, and yelling, what the fuck is going on? What is that? My grandmother describes the light as if it was scanning them, all of them, at once. Linda slams on the gas and goes, and Debbie's in the back, able to make out what this thing looks like, while still in hysterics, saying it looks like this huge disc with a bunch of windows and lights. The stereo goes out completely, and Linda notices that the gas pedal went to the floor (gasps) like it had no resistance. Stop. I know I have chills. The car shuts off. The disc above them, shining extremely bright, gets brighter and brighter, and then boom, gone. What? Flashed away so fast, it left them almost blind for a few minutes after it had gone. This is... They're screaming to each other. What was that? What was that? Over and over again. After a little time passes by, the car turns back on, and they rush back home. Fast forward a couple years later, Debbie is 16, Carol is 18, and Linda is in her early 20s. They all get cancer, thyroid, and cervical. All of them. The doctors could not explain it, and the only thing that made sense is if they were exposed to some sort of radiation some way, (gasps) somehow. Like, what? Luckily, it all got treated, and they're all okay now. But for my second story, this one is pretty nuts. My grandmother went to the dentist before the encounter that I had just mentioned above and had all of her wisdom teeth, so they'd scheduled a date for them to be taken out. Weeks after the encounter, my grandmother went in to see the dentist again to do one last x-ray of her teeth to see if it had gotten any worse because she had impacted damage. The teeth were fucking gone. He came in the room and asked when she'd gotten her teeth taken out. And she was confused. Like, does this dentist even know what he's doing? And so she says, never. And the dentist shows her the x-rays before and then the x-ray that he just took. And her teeth are gone. Stop. No incision line, no swelling, nothing. And to this day, we cannot figure out what happened. Is this UFO shenanigans or what is it? I've been told UFOs tend to follow families, which I have encountered many times. 
and even have had some vivid dreams of being abducted. They were actually really sweet, but I'd be totally okay if I never had to have that dream again. (laughs) Hopefully it was a dream. I have too much anxiety for this kind of shit. Anywho, hope you enjoy. Thanks for doing all that you do. You guys are the bomb.com. Sincerely, Krista. I, the teeth thing is so weird. There was something, I just tried to like Google it, but so I remember someone saying that they're like wisdom tooth dissolved on its own or like something strange, but I couldn't find anything about that. I may have made that up or something happened in another timeline, but well, and it's, that's so strange. It was only a few weeks time. Even if a tooth does dissolve, all four of them that are impacted in your gums don't dissolve all at once. And I also don't think they dissolve. Or that quickly. That's a two girls, one brain cell comment. But isn't that crazy? And also this whole experience, it makes me think these are the same aliens because everything is so similar. Right. To the Stanford case. Like so similar. Even the way the UFO was described, how it comes towards them. The car speeding up. The car. Yes. And two, let's remember these, these women, I mean, they were, they were kids at the time. They were really young. Like the oldest one was basically probably just able to, to drive. And so I think the difference here is they might not have even known if they lost time or not. Right. To them, they were just frantic and they get home and they're like, talking a mile a minute. Here's what just happened to me. Whereas the case that you described earlier, they, they had conscious time marks because they Mm -hmm. left dinner and you know, they were they were older. They were thinking of that. But I do wonder if um, yeah. Krista's grandmother did lose a big chunk of time. And when they felt like they were blinded in the car sitting there that waiting was them for their being car abducted. to turn on. Yeah. And all of them developing cancer as if they had been exposed to radiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whoa. I know. Ugh. Um, so unsettling. Okay, wait. This is reminding me. I feel like there's no chance I'm going to find this quickly, okay. but I'm going to try. So our dear friends, Jerry and Sarah from Mm -hmm. Ladies and Tangents, I'm trying to, sorry if you can hear little clips, I'm trying to pull up their TikTok to remember what exactly it was, but okay, I'm not going to find it. Sierra had something, oh, taken out of her body. What was that? Her appendix? Do do you remember what, was it her appendix? I want to text her right now and be like, what came out of your body again? Wait, hold on. I can check my DMs. We definitely talked about this. Okay, I can't find it, but even the Daily Mail posted about it. But she also had something where it was like there was no sign of it surgically being removed. It just was disappeared. Gone. Right. So I think Sierra also is experiencing Yeah, maybe Sierra is being abducted. Interesting. But to that point, Krista did say, you know, like sh- they've heard a lot before. And we've heard too that they follow UFO families. abductions don't. Yes. And they don't end with the one abduction. You know, Mm-mm. like people. These things are continuing to again. study you, continuing to watch. And then, yeah, your next of kin are additional subject matter for them. Yeah. So I do wonder, I mean, Krista, you owe us many more emails about all of your experiences yeah, that you've know. had. I wonder if Krista's also getting abducted now. <sighs> Aliens are so confounding. I, <laughs> I'm like so torn right now because my like instantly my my immediate thought was krista can i sleep over and <laughs> and subject myself to this as well but mm-hmm. but then it, i don't yeah i think in in theory it sounds fascinating because i just have this desire to know more but in practice when i hear all these stories and the repercussions or the side effects and and psychologically and physically that come from abductions Mm-hmm. Who would ever want to subject themselves to that? Who would ever willingly go through that? 
right? Because we don't know exactly what happens. Yeah. We don't know exactly what tests are going to be performed on you specifically. Yeah. And you don't know that when you come back, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Aliens. Aliens. GBI. What are you going to do? GBI, GBI coming join for us. you. Yes. For our Ghost Bureau of Investigation turned Galactic Bureau of Investigation. Dun, dun, it's dun, a double whammy. Wait, we should make dun, patches. Dun, dun. Let's do that. I want to make the GBI. Patches. And I want like a yes. black, like, what's it called? Bomber. I want a black bomber with the patch. Kind of like an FBI jacket, mm. but a oh, hell GBI yeah. jacket. I lo- Well, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation <laughs> does exist. So we just have to make sure it's it's not like that. We can work on the name. <laughs> We, yeah, we can. Well, well, we'll work on the design. The name the is name, the name. Okay, yeah. Sue us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the how the Salem the police have the witch on a broom on their mm-hmm. logo and their badge and stuff. Yes. Logo. Yeah. The police logo. <laughs> <laughs> we know nothing about anything. And that is why this was an episode of Two Girls, One Ghost. Or I thought you were going to say, this is an episode of Two Girls, One Brain Cell. One brain cell. Brought to you by. Well, I think we both mostly had brain cells today there were moments we had moments we did we're fine we're here yeah um but this is an episode brought to you by got halloween (laughs) (laughs) full circle moment there yeah i know you should just start writing little jingles and slogans i feel like you'd be great at it well i guess we already related yeah all spooky related yeah it's basically our our podcast and merch and episode titles exactly whatever so it exists. It exists. Um, but thank you for joining us. Yes. If you have ever been abducted or know someone who has or have any suspicions of aliens around you, please email us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. That goes for all paranormal, cryptid, weird, strange, lovely encounters yeah. with the other side. Yeah. Or with the unexplained. And join our pyramid scheme, friends. Please tell all of your friends about our podcast. Suck them into the triangle. Seems like a strange mm-hmm. way to say it, but do it. And um, get, yes, suck, get sucked. Get, <laughs> <laughs> you still have time to get sucked. It's Join so our triangle. dirty. <laughs> but I guess it's appropriate for two girls, one ghost. Get lost in the triangle and get sucked. <laughs> Ugh, uh, when you say it like that, when I say it, I don't hear it. But when you say it, I'm like, whoa. Look, that's what I was hearing when you were saying it. <laughs> Anyway, support us in various ways. You can join our Patreon. You can uh, rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow us on social media. And yeah, watch our YouTube. Thank you so much for all of you joining us every week. We love you. Thank you to our editors at Upfire Digital, Aiden Manning, Eric Foster, Max Lodian, the whole crew. We love you. Thank you. And we will see you on the other side. Bye-bye. Bye.